will be continuing them there with me. In First John, we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, but I need to start back at verse 5 of chapter 1 yet again. Now, in chapter 2, John begins his tests of the Christian faith, answering that question we may have deep in our heart, am I really saved? Do I know him? We looked last week at that first test of obedience. God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the next test, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, is the test of brotherly love. The one who says he knows God and doesn't love his brother is a liar. So do we love our brother? Uh, interesting to know when Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That was the first test. Do you love God? And the second test is, he says, and likewise, love your brother as yourself. That becomes the second test. But there's a transition between them, and that's what we'll be considering today as he talks about the commandment being old and being new. And it's a little bit confusing, so we'll spend some time looking at it. But first, let us read 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5, reading through, I think I'll stop at verse uh, 11, since we're a little behind today. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There is no cause for stumbling. 
But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for giving us these things in your word and for giving us these tests that we may apply to ourselves to see how we are doing, how we are walking with you, walking in the light. And pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see and not walk in the darkness, but recognize the things we need to improve and the things we can rejoice in. And we ask, Lord, your blessing now as we examine your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off in this section saying, It is not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. What is he talking about? Well, I think this is really primarily an explanation of the preceding doctrine that he has put forward. That the word of God is what tells us what God wants and what tells us then how we are walking with him. Are we keeping his commandments? We cannot know if we are keeping his commandments if we do not have the word to examine. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14, 15. We need to know those. And of course, it's not unreasonable for John to take a break here and stress this because it is a problem for men. Novel doctrine is really sought after by the world. We don't want the good old gospel truth. We want new and exciting things. Uh, Paul saw this when he was in Athens. He said that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, Acts 17.21. And of course, you'll remember he was summoned to the Areopagus, the great temple of wisdom, to let him speak his ideas so they could hear him. Uh, We see this kind of attitude, though, this desire for new ideas and new and better interpretations in the church at large today. And we may even see it sometimes in our own heart. Oh, that's new. That's exciting. I haven't heard that before. When I first became a Christian, that was a good thing. I had never heard any of it before. I remember sitting on the edge of my seat in the church listening to good old Pastor Cook preach. And he was talking about being washed. you got to be washed. And I'm on the edge of my seat. I don't know what this washed is, but i got to be washed. And then I found out about the law of the perseverance of R's. All the R's that get dropped in the water in Boston end up down in Baltimore where he's from in the watermelon. But everything was new as a new believer. But nothing was new in the sense of Scripture. And that's, I think, the main part of his point. He's appealing not to his wisdom and his greatness, but what I am saying is what has been in the Scripture and you've been hearing from the beginning. None of it is new. None of it is novel. to To the believer... Novel doctrine, things we've never heard before, if we've been a believer a long time, is immediately going to get us perked up and go, what? They have something new? That's not good. It's dangerous. It's common, really, for 
novel, new, never-before-known doctrines to be little more than old heresies couched in new words. In Jude, we saw in Jude 1.3 that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's no new revelations, there's no new ideas coming from God to us. The scripture is complete, it is sufficient, it has once for all been delivered to the saints. We don't need new things. And we know from Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9. Their search for new ideas and new doctrines be it in the world as a lar- at large or in the church, is something that will immediately get our hackles up. And so John is saying, I'm not writing you something new. You've had this commandment from the beginning. Secondly, we, we don't really want to take the yoke of responsibility and burden of obedience upon ourselves if we don't have to. And certainly... We're not going to listen to some person who has no authority who tells us we have to do this and this and this to be happier, to be saved, or to be good. Uh, we're not just going to take those things upon us. And so his appeal to Scripture, his appeal to this being what you've been hearing from the beginning, from the Word, is an appeal to the authority of God and authority of Scripture. And it gives us then the will to... You know, contend earnestly for those things, uh, not being lured away by new doctrines that change every season, but submitting ourselves to the things in the Word, even though sometimes it's a struggle, even though it's contrary to what society wants us to do. And <coughs> so it becomes quite necessary for him to point out that this is not new doctrine new ideas that I'm making up on the fly, but it is the thing you have known all along. When we as believers do embrace scriptural doctrine, you may have noticed it's very hard to change. Uh, Some of that's just us being obstinate, but some of it is because we know that things have once for all been delivered unto the saints, and if we're changing our idea, It's saying either God has changed or we have changed. Since God doesn't change, it really has to be that we have now come to greater understanding. Uh, I've noticed as I get older and older and go through the Bible more and more frequent, more and more times, every time I go through some passage, I pick up something I didn't understand before. It's new in that sense, but it's old in that it's always been there. And so, for these reasons, I think John is taking a little bit of time to reassure us that, you know, these old doctrines that we have always had are the ones he is teaching. He's not teaching something new, something novel, something he invented, but he is teaching the very will of God and calling us then to be obedient to it. And this appeal that he is making is one that I think I make every week and ministers, believing ministers around the world make every week, that it is not me 
and not my new ideas that you are listening to, but you are listening to me explain the scriptures. Uh, I'm not giving you any new new wisdom, new ideas. I'm simply explaining the thing you've always heard, hoping that you find new things in it, but not giving new things that have not been known before. And the doctrines of man change with every season, but the word of God is unchanging, infallible, inerrant, and useful, according to Scripture. And so he's called us to obedience to the commandments of God in the previous test. If you love me, keep my commandments. We know that we love him because we obey him. We know that we know him because we're keeping the commandments. First uh, John 2, 4 and many similar verses. <coughs> now, to love God is to keep his commandments. Then what are the commandments? Well, we mentioned it in the introduction, the Ten Commandments, really. And the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, when he's talking about idols, he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness under heaven above, or in earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to a thousand of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, this teaching of Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments, is not new. It was given to the people of God in the Ten Commandments as part of it. And when it's summarized, and that's what Jesus did, he summarized the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 6 is the verse he's quoting. He didn't make that summary up. I remember when I first read that, I thought, wow, he has such great wisdom to be able to summarize the Old Testament so well. No, he was quoting the Old Testament to the people who should have known the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to read 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That was a prayer, a chant that the Jews did very often. But verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's what Jesus quoted. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So he's talking about the love of God connected to the commandments of God. And Jesus is simply quoting that as a summary of what we call the first table of the law, the the ones that have to do with God. But we'll look at that in a little bit. And so the test from verses 3 to 5 of chapter 2 of knowing God is that if you do know God, you will then, by definition, start keeping his commandments. It's not a new doctrine, but it's something that came from the Old Testament. And what we notice, though, is in the New Testament, it becomes much, much clearer to us what's going on and what, what's required and what's um, implied. Uh, Jesus applies the Old Testament law in his ministry on a number of occasions. Now, I've said that 
it's always been in Scripture the requirement to love God. But I think if you can move forward in this passage, because this is a connector between the first two tests, the very same thing can be said about the second test, brotherly love, that it is still in the Old Testament. We'll look at that next week, so I, Lord willing, so I'm not going to get into it too much now. But remember Jesus' answer that I mentioned in the introduction. Is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And that's the first table of the law that he's summarizing. Remember the first commandments. No other gods before me. No idols. No blasphemy. And keep the day that he is appointed to be worshipped holy. It is set aside for him. Keep it set aside for him. You know, that is the love for God. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second set of commandments, this five through 10, honor your mother and father. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear fault, witness, or covet. You know, those commandments are about how we interact between man and man. And Jesus summarized them from the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 19, 17, and 18 is where you find that summary that he quoted. Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with him, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus quotes that verse from the Old Testament for that sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, by these two quotes, he says, Jesus says all of the commandments, all of the law and all of the prophets, meaning all the books of the, law, of the first five books of the Bible plus the prophets, hang. In other words, all that they say is built up into those two things that Jesus has said. And those are John's first two tests. Are you a believer? Well, you should keep his commandments because that's what it means to love God. You should love the Lord with all your heart. Are you a believer? Then you should love your brother as yourself. Because that is the summary of the, the rest of the commandments about man to man. And so it's not a new commandment, but an old commandment. These two things he has written are both old, not new. Then he goes on to say, but it is a new commandment. <laughs> in verse 8, at the same time, in my ESV, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Now, in the Greek... Verse 7 and 8 begin with the same phrase. Not a new commandment, I write to you. In verse 7, and again, a new commandment, I write to you. Although the word again there is a Greek word that doesn't mean exactly what again means in English. But that's the common translation. 
And to help people understand the meaning, Bible translations will then interpret that a little bit because the overlap of one word sometimes doesn't work well. Uh, I may have given the illustration before of somebody telling me to open the light in my class in Cambodia. I'm like, open? Well, their word for open, bao, means to open physically, but it also means to turn on a light or turn on the car. Now, to me, you close the electric circuit to turn on the light, so it was very confusing. But we have this kind of a problem where words don't necessarily translate the same every time. And so their efforts have been made to make it clear. The problem is when they make it clear, each of them has a different interpretation. And that's the danger. Uh, many translations just use again, like the King James, because that leaves the interpretation to the reader. Uh, others, the NASB says, on the other hand, implying that one commandment is old and another one is new. Love God is the old commandment, love brother a new commandment. But as I've just shown, love your brother is an old commandment. Uh, the ESV says at the same time, it's a new commandment. Uh, wanting to make your interpretation be that there's only one commandment being discussed, but in some way it is both new and old. The NIV goes a bit further, it says, I am writing you a new, yet I am writing you a new commandment. And the reader's version, the children's version of the NIV says, but I am writing you what amounts to a new commandment. So they're implying that they've taken the old commandment and Jesus is giving and John is giving a new interpretation that's not never before known, a novel understanding. Uh, Calvin rejects them all. <laughs> There are times when I don't agree with Calvin's interpretation because his, well, his theology may be right, his exegesis is kind of weak, and this is one of them. He sees this, let's see, he says, I'll quote, interpreters do not agree, do not appear to me to have attained the meaning of the apostle. He says here, new because God, as it were, renews it daily by suggesting it so that the faithful may practice it in their whole life. For nothing is more excellent that can be sought by them. In other words, he's saying new means you try to obey new each morning. But, well, that's, yes, that is true doctrine. I don't think that's here. Now, I like, again, as a translation, because I don't like them interpreting something that could be interpreted a different way. But I think the interpretation... I would agree more with the ESV. Uh, the word again here is used in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. All these different parables about the kingdom and what it is like. And the again is really showing the different ways in which it is the same or in which you can describe the kingdom. And so I think the commandment can be described as an old commandment because it's coming from the Old Testament. But it can also be described as a new commandment because in the revelation of Christ, we see then the more, more of the fullness of it. And so we looked at it before and it was this little thing. And now we look at it and we see the richness of it and the glory of it. And that's particularly true in a number of things that Jesus teaches. 
And I think this is why they say it is true in him in verse 8. The true in him there is that what was old was a shadow of what was to come. And what is new is the revelation of it through Christ. Remember, like Hebrews 10.1 says, since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. Uh, there are a number of places in the New Testament that indicate that we were looking at things with, with a limited perspective until Christ came and showed us the fullness of the glory of it all. And I think that's what John is driving at here. Yep. Sorry about that. <clears throat> and yeah, so that I think is what John is driving at here. We'll look at that again in a moment. But he also says it is because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. The darkness is passing away in Christ, who is the true light, is shining. Remember John 3, 19 through 21, we looked at. You know, this is judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. Whatever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Uh, later in the book, Jesus says in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, he John in 1 John is giving the explanation of what he has taught and that it's involved with the darkness passing away and now the true light, the light of Christ shining. Uh, in our lives, we know that this darkness and light is contrasted in that we were once in darkness and now we are in light. Uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, the first 13 verses, and I think I'll read those so that we really get a grasp. He says, But sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. And this is the key here. For at one time you were walking in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I think this is what is meant by the darkness is passing. Christ has come in. His light is shining on the world and his people are transformed. We are then to walk as children of light. That's John's first test. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The things made known in his word. The scriptures, John has been saying all along. And in verse 10, he goes on to say, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That is why we have the scriptures, to know what pleases God. And so Jesus, the true light, is already shining. He is shining light on the world. He has shined light on the scriptures. 
He's shining light in our hearts, and we are moving from darkness to light. And that, if you remember all the way back in the beginning of chapter 1 in verse 5, we're told that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so this light has come into the world, and we are now to walk in obedience to God in the light. Now, the Old Testament law is sometimes confused by people, and I want to spend a little bit of time uh, considering this, this truth of John. We read that we are to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord as we pass from darkness into light. And I've sometimes, I've heard Christians make a very firm distinction. We're not under law, we're under grace. We're not under the Old Testament, we're under the New Testament. And they try and make a division there. And then they say things like we mentioned before that, oh, that's, you know, Old Testament law, that's not for me, or that's you know, an Old Testament thing, I'm a New Testament believer. And there's a lot of confusion around that. We know from Galatians 3 that the Old Testament was our schoolmaster, right? Galatians 3, 23 and following. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until faith came or until faith, the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our, our guardian or our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, the word schoolmaster, or in a modern translation, guardian, was the, um, the trusted slave who was put in charge of the son, who would follow the son around and correct him and teach him right from wrong. And that's and help him then to grow into a proper man, particularly for the higher social statuses. They would do that. And he's using that word because that was the job of the law to show us things. One of the most important things that it was showing us was really our need for a savior and for righteousness outside of ourselves. Romans 3, 19, 20 says, for we know that what the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law as well as the moral law, was there to teach them that they were sinners, to show them. You know, remember the rich young ruler, he comes up and says, oh, but Lord, all of these I have kept. And Jesus loved him. And we'll talk about that one next week. But he loved him by saying, then give everything you have to the poor and follow me. And he went away sad because he was rich. He didn't think he was greedy. But when told he would have eternal life if he gave it all away, he said, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And thus he saw that he was greedy. The job of the law was to show him that, and he should have known that. The job of the law is to show us our sin, silence our mouth, but also show us then the need for justification outside of ourselves. I can't save myself because I'm a corrupt sinner. I can't seem to do right. I have all of this sin. The conviction of that, the weight of that, is what drives us to the cross. And while the, the promise was in the Old Testament, 
the reality was not really known until Christ appeared and did the work, until he died on the cross. But they knew it was coming, and they trusted in a righteousness that they couldn't understand, whereas we trust in the righteousness of Christ that we have seen in his work on earth, his death on the cross. Uh, they just knew it was coming. So we, we have a much clearer view of these things. But that Old Testament law teaches us even today about sin. And that's why we continue in it that we know the moral law, that we know what God considers right and what he considers wrong, that we obey him by doing what he considers right and not doing what he tells us we shouldn't do. Now, the question comes up, of course, you know, the people who are saying I'm under grace, not under law, is addressed in Romans 6, 15 and following. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And he goes on to talk about how if you present yourself to something, you're a slave to it. If you present yourself to sin, you become a slave to sin. Just ask any alcoholic, any smoker, any drug addict. You know, you can see that truth. Well, that is true, but of general, of sin. And... We have that as our, our life. We've been set free from sin by the blood of Christ. But that freedom is not, you know, as we talked about before, perfectionism, which John has already condemned. But that freedom then is the freedom to start to do what is right and to repent of our sins and to seek forgiveness from our sins, in which John has promised us we will receive if we repent, if we confess. Now, Jesus himself makes it plain that obedience to the Old Testament moral law is still in effect. He says in Matthew 5:17 and following, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How did he fulfill them? Well, he did them all perfectly, earning for himself the reward God had promised. Do this and you shall live. He did it all. And he lives. He has eternal life as his reward. It says, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not, and I'll translate here, the least stroke of the pen or the smallest letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We looked at that passage before, and the conclusion was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was by them considered perfect, but by God considered useless. You will not enter if it's not greater than what they have. And where do you get the greater righteousness? By doing better and better myself? No, by trusting in the blood of Christ, by faith in the blood. So Jesus wasn't abolishing the moral law or the commandments, but he was perfectly fulfilling them. 
And in that, now we know what it means to fulfill them. You know, they thought they were fulfilling them, the scribes and the Pharisees, but they weren't. In Jesus, in his life, in his teaching, in his ministry, in all that he did on earth, we can now see what it means to fulfill the law. Uh, we'll look at it next week, Lord willing, but what does it mean to love your brother as yourself? Uh, well, I didn't kill him, so I'm good. <laughs> Just ask my children. What does it mean to love your sister or your brother as yourself? Jesus gives us an example, and we'll talk about that next week. He alone was able to fulfill the law, and we know that he was sinless. Uh, other people, other religions don't accept this, but keep in mind, he asked the question boldly in front of his enemies, who of you can convict me of sin? In John 8, 46. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.22 that he committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. In 1 John 3.5 that he has appeared to take away the sins. In him there was no sin. Hebrews 4.15 we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness because he was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. And we know that if you have sin, you are accursed. Well, Christ was accursed on the cross in our place. And that is where the forgiveness comes from. Galatians 3, 10 and following. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things of the book of the law to do them. So if we think I'm doing it well enough, he says, no, if you haven't done all of them, you haven't done it well enough, and you're under a curse. And that's quoting the Old Testament, by the way. Now, is that evident that no one is justified before God by the law? Because the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Jesus did them and lived by them. And in, in his atonement for us, he also gives us he takes our sins and they're put upon him on the cross. And his righteousness is imputed to us. And a share of his reward, eternal life, is given to his people. And that is what all of this has been driving at. So he calls us then to follow the example that he lived. It's not enough to say, oh, I have faith, I believed, I can go on living in sin. And I'll go to heaven because I have faith. John has already addressed that. If you're walking in darkness, you don't know God. If you're repentant of your sins, you're confessing your sins and seeking forgiveness for them, and you're walking in the light, then you know God. And that distinction was made back in chapter 1, so that now in chapter 2, he can start talking about following the example of Christ. Or we can start considering the example of Christ. And he says in John 15:10 that if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He always did what pleased his Father, and his Father had love for him. And we are called to follow his example of always doing what pleases God, not pleases ourselves. Now, men will often say, oh, I'm not breaking the commandment. You know, wink, wink. 
I'm, but I'm pleasing myself, doing what, putting myself first. And that ends up leading them to a life of sin. Remember that keeping his commandments was an evidence of our salvation, a passing of the test last week. Now, the question should be, what does this following God, what does this obeying his commandments look like? And that is the second test. He gives a real example. You know, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? Brotherly love becomes the test. And I won't touch on that one. So I'll look at patience and long-suffering with people who annoy you to death. How many have that one perfected? Raise your hands. I'll put mine down. <laughs> I haven't actually physically strangled anyone yet, but you know, God knows my heart. We have in the Old Testament the commandment. Right? This is an old commandment. If you meet your enemies ox or his donkey going astray, you bring it back to him. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it and you shall rescue it with him. In other words, you got to help your neighbor, even if you hate him. Uh, Proverbs 25 21 and 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you heap burning coals upon his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, the first time I read that, Jesus quotes it. I thought, heap burning coals, you mean you make his place in hell worse? Do I really want to do that? Uh, one of the commentators suggested that, no, what they're saying, is, what, what God is saying is, by doing that, you'll heap burning coals to warm basically to convert him from his wickedness to understanding that he's loved. You know, how many times have you seen an enemy, somebody who hated you, you helped them and they stopped hating you? They realize, oh, you're not a bad person. Oh, you've helped me. And I think that's the point. But uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and following says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Yeah, he, uh, he I don't think he actually killed anyone, but he voted to kill them and guarded the clothes of those who were killing him. You know, they'd take off their robes so they could throw rocks. He was basically a persecutor of the Christian church and a murderer of the Christians. But he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ overfloweth for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And I received this mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, what does it look like to be patient and long-suffering? We're given the commands in the Old Testament, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. In Christ, we see what it means. Oh, this man who persecuted him to the death. Remember when... 
on the road to, on the road, Paul falls down and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He persecuted him. And how did he respond to that persecution? How did he respond to that difficult person who was an insolent opponent? By giving him life. What does it look like? You have the old commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. The old commandment. You know, help your enemy. The old commandment, if they're hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give them a drink. What does that look like? Well, we see in Christ that looks like saving the soul of one who persecuted him. And that's what it looks like. We'll look at brotherly love next week in this regard. But I hope you have a thought here about this, that you know, the Old Testament is still valid and important. It is interpreted and explained and revealed more fully in the New Testament and in Christ. But it is all God's command. And we should remember those things and never be dissuaded not to look at the Old Testament or continue consider the Old Testament. Because as Jesus has said, you know, not the least stroke of a pen, the difference between an O and a Q, for instance, or the smallest letter will disappear. Everything is as required today as it was when it was written. And we have a lot we can learn about what pleases God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we want to be passing the test, if you love me, keep my commandments. If And you know, if you love your brother, you're keeping that commandment. If we want to pass those two tests, we need to really know Scripture, all of it, in its entirety and sincerity. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Not only that we have these tests written in Scripture, but Lord, that we have all of Scripture written for us. It reveals your will to us reveals what you require of us, reveals what we should do and shouldn't do, and gives us many insights into how to control our heart and how to control our life, that we do have that ability to please you and to glorify you. But we know, Lord, that we do not do it constantly, that we're not as faithful in keeping your commandments in either testament. And we confess, Lord, our sins to you. And we know, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we ask that of you, especially today as we come to communion. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.